0: Uh, For the rest of us in here, we are going to continue our way in the book of Judges uh, this morning. We're going to be in chapter 6, and today we're going to see our sixth judge. Um, And we shouldn't be surprised that we are going to see that same cycle um, in many ways. The Israelites turning away from God, God giving them over to their oppressors. They cry out, and what does God do? He comes to their rescue But at the same time this morning, we're going to find out that his response is a little bit different um, than we've seen so far in the book of Judges. Uh, So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will look to his word. Oh, Father, um, would you be present with us now? Would you bless uh, the reading and the preaching of your word? Uh, Would you help us uh, to see Jesus ultimately? Would you help us to see our greatest and most ultimate need? And might it only be found and the answer to it only be found in you we pray amen so should be no surprise to all of you christmas is right around the corner right Uh, we're very close and and many of you you'll get up christmas morning all sorts of presents there to unwrap and many of you you'll, you'll start unwrapping one present and you will open it up you'll see what it is and you'll immediately throw it over your shoulder you probably know what I'm talking about. It's probably socks or underwear. Uh, my kids, you know, they get that big old thing of like socks. It seems like almost every year and they, they're nonplus. They're never very excited to open it up. Now, yet at the same time, it's something that we all need, right? They're getting a gift. They're, they're getting precisely what they need. It may not be what they want. It may not be their favorite present, but it's something that they desperately need. This morning, as we uh, look to uh, Judges 6... We're going to see the Israelites, as I said, they're going to cry out again, Um, but this time they're going to get something a little bit different, okay? They're going to get something that they're not too excited about, that they don't really want, but they're going to get exactly what they really need. Let's look to the text, starting at verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For when the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with the livestock in their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land um, as they came, came in. Now, what do we see here? What, what happens again? But the Israelites did what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what did God do? Again, he gives them over to their oppressors. He gives them over uh, to the Midianites for seven years. And what, did you see that? Did you hear kind of the picture that the, the, the the Midianites, they came in like locusts. It's like a they, they, they came in like locusts and just devoured up the land, leaving nothing behind, no sustenance. And what were the Israelites faced with doing? They had to run, run up into the caves and the mountainside. In verse 2, they, they had to escape as the Midianites just came in like locusts. And so finally, what does Israel do? They do what we've been seeing happen. Uh, the Israelites over and over, verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because a Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help uh, to the Lord. They do it again. that They've caught themselves in a bad place. Um, God gives them over. And here again, we see them crying out. Now, what we're going to see next is not exactly what they want or expect. Um, God doesn't send them a judge. As we're going to see, he sends them instead a prophet. Basically, he sends them a preacher instead. They want somebody to come in and rescue them from the Midianites and God sends in a preacher. Uh, one commentator puts it uh, this way. It's kind of like if, if you're a stranded motorist and you call up a garage and you need somebody to come out to come help you with your broken down car and they were to send out a philosopher. That, that's kind of what's happened and the philosopher is going to tell you all the reasons why your car broke down. Um, let's see, what does the Lord do? Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites... The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the land of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you. I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. What does the prophet say? He says... And tells them and reminds them of what God has done. God has rescued you. He's delivered you. He's done all of this for you. That's the first point. And the second point is what? And what have you done? You've not obeyed my voice. <laughs> what, what did they do? They, as we'll see, as the passage goes on, they they've turned away from God and they've turned to idols. In fact, even our judge in this passage, he his like house, his household, like they, they had their, his family. They have their own like shrine and stuff. That the whole townspeople would come and worship. This is how bad things have gotten the moral, if you will, of the prophet's story to them. Is you are where you are because of what you have done. Israel, you've gotten yourself into this situation. Do you see what you've done? This is a very different response than we've seen so far in judges, right? He doesn't just come in. He doesn't just send a judge in to rescue them. That The answer is like theological. He comes in to do theology and tell them this is... This is how, this is Israel, this is how you've gotten to where you are yet again. But God's concern with them isn't just theological, just to tell them the truth. As we move through our passage, we're going to see that it's also pastoral. God is very concerned for them. He's very concerned for their hearts. And their problem with the Midianites, it's just a surface problem. Their problem isn't the Midianites. The problem is something much deeper in Israel that they keep giving themselves over to these idols. Um, I think you and I, we're we're often very similar, aren't we? We we like to deal with surface problems, right? We don't like to go down deep usually. We don't like to deal with the idols of our hearts. I was reminded of this just this past week. I was reading an article on idolatry and actually on parenting and idolatry. And I wanted to share a couple of points. The first one was how our children can become idols for us. Children are a blessing and a good gift, right? Like many good things, they can become what? They can become idols. Uh, It happens when we begin to find our meaning and our significance in being a parent or in living somehow through our children, right? And um, our lives, we find, begin to revolve around them. And everything uh, becomes in some way or another about them. And what do we begin to find? Where do we find our purpose? Where do we begin to find our identity? But in our kids. And so you get frustrated with your kids. You get angry at your kids. Often it's because they become your idol. And, and we want to deal with the frustration. And why do I get so irritated with my kids? It may be that you've turned them into an idol. And, and, and you see there's a much deeper problem going on. Or, or maybe you're a concern if, if we're just continuing to think about the parenting, but we could think about it in other ways um, the idol of success. That can show up in all sorts of ways in our life, but think about it in the context of parenting. I mean, who doesn't want their children to grow up happy and healthy, right, and productive? That's what we want our kids to look like. And the problem is when you and I, we begin to put our hope in that success, right? And when they don't have success, maybe it's in, in school, in sports, the way they behave, the way they look, who their friends are. You, you see, when we begin to worship this idol of our, our kids' success, what do we find? We begin to take our children's failures personally, don't we? Um, uh, their failures become our failures in some way because our worth is, 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 is all tied up in them. So we get frustrated when they don't deliver what we want because they are our idol. Now, stepping back from parenting a little bit, uh, there are many other idols, and we could go on a long list of them, but just one more, and I've confessed before this is one that I struggle with, is the idol of comfort, right? Um, At the end of that long, weary day, what do we want? You know, we're just, you know, i got to get to my Netflix binge for the night, you know? Um, Or i got to just mindlessly scroll through social media, you know? Um, Or maybe, as as the author of that article put, uh, Uh, Maybe it's that big bowl of ice cream at the end of the day that you just got to get to, right? The idol of comfort, um, it serves to numb us, right? From the difficulties and the challenges of life, it gives us that moment to just totally escape. And we might actually think that like, we've had a long, hard day and I deserve this. I deserve the escape. And the problem is, of course, that we seek hope, we seek refuge, we seek help in the created things. Instead of our, our great God. And when anything gets in the way of that comfort, what do we do? We get irritated. We get upset. We get angry. There's all sorts of paths we can take towards sin, right? All sorts of paths. But what we need to see is that underneath those things, underneath things like being angry or frustrated or depressed or whatever, they're, they're so often there's deeper things going on underneath there. And it's those deeper things that need and must be dealt with. So often we think the problem is the bowl of ice cream. okay? And that's just a symptom of something much, much deeper. Something far more insidious that's going on in our heart. And in fact, and don't miss it, something that's going on in our heart that's far, far more deadly. Because we are finding ourselves seeking, like the Israelites. The Israelites, they're, they're looking at the culture around them. Look, They're looking at the world that they find themselves in. And, and, and they begin to look at that for their hope, for their security, for their everything. Instead of their redeeming God. And don't miss how often you and I, we, we do that same thing too, don't we? We look to the creation instead of the creator. And we look to the creation instead of the one who has come and who has given everything for us. And we sell it for cheap things of this world. Do you find yourself doing the same thing as the Israelites? Looking to these other things that aren't really God's instead of looking ultimately to Christ. The prophet comes to Israel to expose them. To to help them to see, do you see what you're doing? Your great God has rescued you and you keep going down this path He's trying to shake them by the shoulders and then something incredible happens in our passage. Or actually doesn't happen in our passage. But it's still so incredible. What what doesn't happen? The prophet has come. He's told them how they've sinned and what do the people of Israel do? In our passage, nothing. There's no response. There's no repentance. And that's where... This passage is so amazing because despite Israel's lack of repentance, what does God do? Their great God, their redeemer God, what does he do? He sends the angel of the Lord to them. He responds to them. Even as they stay in their sin, he responds to them with grace. He doesn't give them the judgment that they deserve. Have you ever thought about where you would be if you received the judgment you deserve? God is so gracious, isn't he? He's so gracious to the Israelites in the context of this passage. He gives them the angel of the Lord, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at at Orpah, which belonged to Joash the Abizorite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Here we get the introduction of our next judge, Gideon. And what is he doing? The scene is kind of comical, right? What is he doing? He's he's beating wheat. But do you see where he's beating wheat? He's beating wheat in a wine press, okay? That, that should give us some clue that things aren't as they should be. Why is he beating wheat in a wine press? Wine presses aren't the best place to beat wheat because it's like down in the ground and what do you need when you're beating wheat? You need like air moving through. It's like you should be on top of a hillside or something so you get that nice breeze going through to just take off the chaff and Instead, he's hiding. Why is he hiding? He's hiding because, what does he fear? The locusts. He fears the locusts coming in to devour him. If they see what he's doing, they're going to come in. The Midianites are going to come in to take his harvest. So here's Gideon, the next judge, fearful, scared. And what does the angel of the Lord say to him? Oh, mighty man of valor. Here's the mighty man of valor in this wine press." You know, did he look over his shoulder? Did Gideon, like, look over his shoulder? Like, who are you talking about? You know, I'm in here terrified. The Midianites are coming after me. And God comes to him. And Gideon responds to him, please, my Lord. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of of Midian. As I was reading this, I was just reminded of a, a story that that John Stott tells in wonderful book, Cross of Christ. But he, he speaks of this kind of figurative story of this guy living down in the slums of Rio de Janeiro. And in Rio de Janeiro, you you may know if you've seen pictures of the city, up on the top of the mountainside there's like this huge statue of Christ. And he tells the story of this poor guy who, who goes on he climbs all the way to the top to right at the foot of that statue. And he says this. I have climbed up to you, Christ, from the filthy confined quarters down there to put before you most respectfully these considerations. There are 900,000 of us down there in the slums of that city. And you, Christ, you remain up here, surrounded by divine glory. Go down there. Come with me and live with us down there. And Stott says, how would Christ respond to that? What would he say? Would he not say, I did Come down to live among you. And I live among you still. Gideon is just like that guy, isn't he? Questioning God. He's saying the same thing. Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned us? Gideon doesn't get it. Clearly, he hasn't listened to the prophet. And this is the next judge. And he hasn't even listened to the prophet, to the word that had come. He he, he didn't hear it. He doesn't understand that the Lord standing before him right now is showing how incredibly patient and loving and gracious his God is. His God is who has come down to him. God's response to him is interesting, isn't it? He doesn't take time to answer any of Gideon's complaints. God's already answered Gideon's complaints through the prophet. Okay? So what does he say? Verse 14 go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not, I send you. Now you may read that at first and you might see that go in this might. Is is God telling Gideon to just go on his own? No, no he's not. He's already said, I go with you, right? And at the end of this, he says, do not, I send you. This going forth that Gideon is supposed to be doing is, is going with the presence of God. That God is going with him and But yet, Gideon doesn't get it, does he? He he doesn't quite understand where this might could possibly come from. Look at his response. He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. He's basically saying, what can I do? I'm a nobody. Now, that's a little, Gideon, I think, is taking things a little too far. Gideon isn't a nobody. We'll see him in a few minutes. He's got a whole plethora of servants. His, his, His Household, his family is wealthy enough that they have like their own worship center that the town goes to. Okay, Gideon is being a little less than honest, but at the same time, he's he's saying, "I'm nobody," and I can almost imagine the angel of the Lord saying, "Ah, Gideon, now now we're getting somewhere. You you understand, you can't do it. You understand, it's it's not about you." But Gideon has totally missed those words: "The Lord is with you," that he said back in verse twelve. You see what we see here is like many of the judges we've seen so far in fact probably all of them they're, they're unlikely they're, they're unlikely judges for a myriad of reasons and we see that in Gideon he he's not chosen because of his abilities he's not chosen because of his deep and abiding faith we're going to be evaluating that as we move forward talking about Gideon and you and I we, we need to take that in a bit I think We need to take that to heart, that you and I, we, like Gideon, we aren't who we are because of our own efforts, because of our own strength, because of our own power. We are who we are because of who God is. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, but he said to me, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect, in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul understood it wasn't about him. It was ultimately about Jesus and the only way he was able to do what he did was because Christ was with him. And don't think for a moment it's not the same way for you and I today. We can't do anything without Christ with us. We can't dismantle any of the idols in our heart without Christ at work with us. And so, it's for that reason that God reminds him, verse 16, and the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Here are these words, this I am with you. It's, it's reminiscent of what God had told Moses in Exodus. But I will be with you And what did he say to Joshua right before he enters the end? Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And now God tells these incredible words, these incredible words to Gideon, words that should bring great and incredible comfort to us. I remember when my kids were much littler, often as I'd tuck them in, put them to bed at night, as I'm walking out the door, I would hear him say I'm afraid of monsters. And I respond there's Don't be afraid of monsters. They're just pretend like monsters for Monsters Inc. And mom and dad will be right outside the door if you need us. The comfort of their pre- the presence of mom and dad. You don't need to worry. We're going to be right You open your door, we're going to be sitting right out there in the living room. You don't have anything to fear. God is bringing great comfort to Gideon. I am going to be present with you and ultimately, as he says, I'm going to give you the victory. As we've seen over and over in Judges, who is it that, that, that wins the victory ultimately? Who is the one that goes to battle for the Israelites over and over? But they're God. Gideon has nothing to fear. God is going with him. Now I was thinking about, like how is Gideon's battle different from ours? some ways, it's very different. In some ways, it's very similar. The beginning of Gideon's battle is going, as we're about to see, is going to be to fight the idols, the idols of his heart and the idols of Israel's heart, right? That's very similar, I think, to a battle that you and I have. We must battle the idols of our heart. We spoke about some of them earlier. But then he's going to go on, uh, not this morning, but in future weeks, he's going to go on to fight the Midianites. Now, we don't fight like that, Right? What does Paul tell us in Ephesians 6? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of this evil age and heavenly places. Our battle today is very different. We surely need to knock down the idols of our heart. But our other battle as we go out into the world is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle for other people's hearts. Reminded of what Jesus says, that great commission that we know so well. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This is the command. This is the the, the battle that you and I are called into. And you see how Jesus ends it, doesn't he? You and I were not called to go out to battle alone. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Christ is present with us as we battle the idols of our heart and as we go out to do the battle that he's called us to in the world that is before us. Now how? How does does Gideon respond to this promise of God's presence? Verse 17, if now... I've found favor in your eyes. Then show me a sign that it is you who speak. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and, and, bring, me out and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I'll stay here until you return. I'm not going to read it all, but then Gideon goes and he makes this elaborate meal. It probably took a couple of hours. I mean, he's roasting a lamb and stuff. And then what does the angel say? The angel of God said to him, take the meat, the unleavened cakes, put them on the rock and pour the broth over them. And he said, and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was his, in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, Some fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Gideon asked for a sign. Now, we're going to see in future weeks, uh, Gideon seems to be very fascinated with signs, to say the least, and we're going to talk about that in future weeks, but for this morning, just suffice it to say, let's be reminded that Gideon is very immature. His faith is like seemingly hours old, okay? He's known about Yahweh, yeah, but I mean a radical transformation is going on here. Remember, his household has has places to worship the gods of Israel, okay? Um, But yet God comes to him and meets him there and we see this sacrifice come up to the Lord and, and the angel of the Lord disappears, Gideon gets exactly what he requests. He gets the affirmation that, yes, this is Yahweh. And, and yes, Yahweh is going to go with me. What do we read? Verse 22, then Gideon perceived that it was angel of the Lord. He perceived that it really was so. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. And to this day, it still stands at Orpah, uh, which belongs to the Abuzarites. When, when Gideon finally gets, when he finally gets the sign, the sign that he's asked for, what does he do? He wants the sign, he wants the comfort of, of knowing that this is really true. And what does he do? He gets, he gets scared. He becomes afraid. He goes back to being fearful. Gideon, even when he gets the sign he wants. And yet God is what, again, with Gideon, he's patient. And he's gracious, peace be to you. Don't fear Gideon. And it's in that moment that something kind of seems to change in Gideon. He goes from this moment of questioning and not being sure to what does he do next? He's worshiping, he, he builds an altar. In that moment, his heart is captivated by his great God. His great redeeming God is. Ca- his heart is captivated by him in that moment. Now, we're going to go on and we're going to talk in future weeks. Gideon's going to have some major struggles ahead and his heart isn't going to always be captivated by his great God. But these are first; These are good steps for Gideon. But but Gideon's job before us this morning is not yet done. First things must be first. Now, typically, the judges come in and what we'd expect is now Gideon's going to go out to battle Midian, right? That's not what happens. There's a much more important battle that needs to be waged. A battle against the idols of Gideon's heart. A battle against the heart of the Israelites. Of the things that are on their hearts. Let's read about it. Verse 25. The Lord tells him, Take your father's bull. The second bull, seven years old. Pull down the altar of Baal that, that your father has. Cut down the Asherah, Asherah that, that is beside it and, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold wherewith stones laid in due order and then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. We see something very sad here. We've mentioned it multiple times. The, Israel isn't just going and worshiping the gods of those who live around them. They're not just going and worshiping the gods of their neighbors. They've adopted the gods of the neighbors for themselves. So the Gideon's family, they, they, have, a, 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 they have a place of Baal to go and worship. And Asherah, they, they, that's owned by Gideon's family. Do you see how sad the state of Israel is? They're not just going and, oh, that's attractive over there. They've brought it in to their own house. This is the sad state that Israel's come to. And so what does Gideon do? Verse 27, so Gideon took ten of his servants. Remember, Gideon's not a nobody. He has ten servants that he's able to take with him. And did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, we read here out of fear, right? He's afraid. But remember, this is immature Gideon. Faith seemingly just a few hours old. He proceeds at night. But don't miss this. He does proceed. He does proceed at night. He's fearful. He's scared of what's going to happen. He knows that what ends up happening, that we're going to read about in a second, is probably going to happen, that people are going to come up after him. But he still goes. He still does it. He has, yes, he has weak faith. But he still has faith. And he knows that the idols of his heart, the idols of his people's heart, must be torn down. They cannot be left to stand. They're destroying the people. And then verse 28, the men of the town rose early in the morning. Behold, the altar of Baal was was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. The men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Don't miss the incredible contrast here of what's going on. These are the Israelites saying this. Do you you remember what the Israelites did earlier in our passage? They cried out to Yahweh, to their great God, for help. Okay, God brings them help in the person of Gideon. In a sense, meeting some of their deepest heart needs, what they really needed at the moment, tearing down the idols, demolishing them, taking them out, and what do the people do? They get upset because God's not giving them what they want. They want the Midianites gone and still be able to worship how they're worshiping. They don't want Yahweh. They just want the benefits of him. How often are we like that? How often are we the same? Wanting God's stuff instead of him? We, we want help in our time of need, but sometimes not the help that others want to give us. It's very sad, but and we all do this. I, I do this too, but just thinking in the context of sometimes doing marriage counseling, and this has happened on multiple occasions, so I'm not talking about one couple by any stretch of the imagination, where a couple comes because they really need counseling. Serious issues going on, serious communication issues, all that. Not able to get along well, and in the midst of it, I find that we find out that the husband has has been deeply involved in pornography. And so that that's a sign, like okay, that needs to. There's a lots of things that need to be dealt with, but that is also a thing that needs to be dealt with, right? So we need to we need to put into place some. Um, some filters, we, we need to put in place some, maybe some accountability software. is gonna cost you five, 10 bucks a month or some other thing. We need to get to the root of why you keep going there. You know, there's work that needs to be done there. Folks, On multiple times, you know what I've heard back? Marriage counseling from church people, okay? Is, uh, that, w- that's too expensive, that's too much. We don't have five, $10 a month and that, that's not really the problem. We, we need to work, it, that's not what's affecting our marriage. That's not what the real problem is. They don't understand that there's these deeper things going on that all of, yes, all of this does. Sometimes we say, okay, we want help over here, but don't go over here. Don't look behind that curtain because that's going to be painful and it's going to hurt. And yet that's precisely the place where we need God. The Israelites precisely need God, their God, in the place that they don't want him to go. They need, they need Baal just torn down. They need that Asherah just torn down. They need the idols demolished in their lives, and they so don't want it. You and I, boy, do we need to do the same. Now, Gideon's dad comes out to respond, and he says this to the townspeople, "'Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? "'Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. "'If he is a god, let him contend for himself.'" because his altar has been broken down. What is, what is Gideon's dad saying? He's saying, if he's really such a great God, I think he can defend himself. Because what does a God do? A God delivers his people. People don't deliver their God. Yet that's so often how we live, don't we? we, we we're constantly find ourselves trying to protect our idols things trying to protect them make sure nobody you know keep them behind the curtain so nobody sees And yeah that's precisely the thing that needs to be demolished because your great god is coming to you and says i, I want you i want you i want your heart i'm with you will you follow me and, and gideon on this day he's not always going to be perfect we're going to see that but on this day he does well therefore on that day gideon was called Drubable, that is to say let Baal contend against him because he has broken down his altar. This may be the mightiest act of Gideon in his entire story. The tearing down of those idols. Idols that so desperately needed to be demolished. To send Gideon straight to just wipe out the Gideon, the Midianites. Wouldn't have accomplished anything, really. I mean, it would have gotten the Midianites out of the way, but it wouldn't have in any way gotten to the heart of the issue but God is concerned with the people's hearts. We must allow God to get to our heart issues. We must not think, I'm angry, therefore I just need to stop being angry. Why are you being angry? What is it that's getting you so irritated so fast? Is it because you can't get that bowl of ice cream and somebody's blocking you from it and keeping you from getting there and so you get angry at them because you just need to get to that moment of comfort? Is, is that what it is? Why, why do you find yourself depressed? Now, it may be that there's uh, medical things going on and you need to see a doctor and that very well may be the truth, but it also may be that you are looking to this world to fulfill that which only Christ can. And you get so upset and and you get down because you're not getting from this world what you want of it because you're looking to this world instead of the Savior of your souls. You look at your neighbor's stuff and you, you want your neighbor's stuff, whatever it is, their house, their car, their kids. And you want their things because you're not satisfied with what your great God has given to you. I'm not saying that They're simple fixes. This isn't like a magic pill that we can take. And Oh, if we just see what our idol is, then we're going to be good. If we see what's really going on under the surface, then I'm fine. I've identified it, so I'm good. No, you've just identified what needs to be killed. You've just identified what it is that needs to be put to death. We must identify the idols of our heart so that they can be put to death. As the author of the article that I mentioned earlier says the good news is that idolatry doesn't have the final say the gospel does the gospel tells us that because of Christ and what he did for us in his life and death and resurrection we are redeemed from sin and purified to live for him we can be freed from our idolatry because of what Christ has done for us that He truly has given it all for us so that our idols can be demolished. He's promised to be present with us to the very end of the age, right? He will be with us as we fight to tear down the idols of our hearts. You must remember, we're not called to do this by ourselves. If you're trying to tear down those idols by yourself, if you're trying to stop being angry by yourself, If you're trying to stop eating that bowl of ice cream by yourself, it's not going to work. It's only with Christ. Remembering that we do so with Christ present with us. We need his assistance. We need his help. Gideon could never go to battle without Yahweh being with him. We can't go to battle without Christ being present with us. And what does Jesus promise us? in John 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever we have holy spirit we have him to walk with us and be present with us as we fight and we fight don't get this wrong for a moment we fight not to be saved we fight not to save ourselves we fight because christ has already died we fight because he's already given it all for us we fight because he has already he's already paid the penalty for our idolatry those idols you're struggling with right now he already paid the penalty for it do you believe that do you understand that you're not going forward to earn your salvation you're going forward to fight because you love him you cherish him you long to be with him, and you're so thankful to your great God who saves. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is tough. Um, we want to believe that we can easily fight the idols that we find in our lives, that we can easily just stop Oh, Father, do we need you. We need you and thank you that in Christ we have you. Would you do your work, purifying our hearts? Would you allow us to be willing to be vulnerable to you and let you, behind the curtain, allow you into those secret places of our heart so that battle might take place? And so that you might do the work. The work of ultimately demolishing. Ultimately demolishing all the idols of our heart. We're thankful and we long for that day. We long for that day. Where there will be no more idols. Where we'll see you face to face. Oh Father, would you continue to be with us as we worship you, our great God, our great Redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand?